That's awesome. Hey, before we get too far into a message, I I want to uh, give a special shout out to some very special people in my life. Uh, My mother and father-in-law are in the house right back here. Yeah, yeah. Right behind Scott. Yeah. They gave birth to the most beautiful girl in the world, my smoking hot wife, uh, Tiffalicious. So anyway, on that note, um, welcome to Central. Happy 80th birthday. And uh, I would say I love my church as well. Uh, I love this church. My wife and I, my, my family, we've only been here for eight weeks, uh, but I love this church. And, uh, and I love this church because of its rich history. Uh, I love that this church is founded on the dedication and sacrifice of men and women who moved to the Bay Area to help people find and follow Jesus years before we ever arrived. Uh, I love this church because God used a local community church just like this to rescue me. In the midst of my addictions, in the midst of my brokenness, a local community church just like you came around and saw something in me that I could not see in myself. And I love this church for that reason. I love this church because out of all the people in the world, 8 billion people breathing on this earth right here, right now, God has chosen you to live right here in the heart of Santa Clara County, where 1.7 million people don't know him yet. And God has chosen you to be his hands extended to this community right here in San Jose. And I love you for that. I love this church because the church isn't a building with four walls and a roof. Uh, You guys know this, the the church is people. People like you and me with all of our hurts, our habits and our hangups, God still allows us to be called his church. You are that church. And here's what I know to be true of you. You are not gonna insult God with small thinking and safe living, but you guys are bet the farm risk takers who will do anything necessary to see God move right here in our generation. And for that, I love this church. So I want you to invite you on this 80th anniversary to stand up to your feet with me, stand up to our feet. This is old school, we're going old school today. Vintage values, here we go. Uh, Stand up to your feet and on this 80th anniversary, I wanna invite you to read out loud with 80 years of oomph, 80 years of pent up energy, 80 years, we're gonna read Hebrews 12, one through two, out loud together with zest and gusto. You ready? Turn to your neighbor and say, you can do this. You can do this. We're gonna do this. All right, Hebrews 12, one through two, here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hey, before you have a seat, why don't you turn to somebody nearby, you give them a high five and say, tag, you're it. Tag, you're it. All right, you can have a seat. 
we've been in a series called Vintage Values, and we've been talking about uh, some vintage values from, from scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, that were at the foundation of Central Christian Church when we started 80 years ago. And those vintage values are going to be at the core of who we are today, but also essential to us moving forward into the future. And so uh, we've been talking about uh, vintage values like walking by faith and not by sight. We've been talking about the vintage value of, of scripture, of God's word, and how we're going to let the word of God be the compass that directs our life both individually and collectively. We've been talking about vintage values like, uh, like whenever we get around people, it's our hope. It's a vintage value of Central that when we get close in proximity with people at work, at the grocery store, wherever we go in life, that what splashes out of our life, our hope is that it is uh, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and, and faithfulness and gentleness and, and self-control. Those are vintage values that we hold in a closed fist. But we've also been talking about how moving forward, we're going we're gonna to have an open-handed posture when it comes to tactics, right? And so how are we going to deploy those vintage values will change over time because what was effective in the Old Testament wasn't effective in the New Testament. What was effective in the New Testament wasn't necessarily effective 80 years ago. And what was effective 80 years ago isn't necessarily effective today. And what's effective today won't necessarily be effective next week or next month or next year or 80 years from now, right? So we're going to hold an open hand tactics, but we're going to have a closed fist posture with vintage values that are based on God's word. Uh, here's what I mean. In 1993, uh, when this church was started, 1939 rather, not 93, very different scenario. 1939, when this church was started, you could buy a new home for 3850 bucks. So if you try to apply a vintage tactic, and you get out your checkbook and you write a check, 3850 bucks. Uh, Mr. Dan, could you please build me a house for 3850 bucks right here in the bay? Good luck. <laughs> Dan's probably going to say, you know what? I got a nice rental property that would be one month's rent for that price. Um, you could buy a new car for 700 bucks in 1939. So you go to the bank right after this service, you, you pull out seven Benjamins, baby, and you go to Tesla and you say, I want that red Tesla right there, 700 bucks. Here you go, sir, paying in cash. They would say, we got a padded room for you, partner, right in the back. Uh, you are crazy. You're crazy. It's a vintage tactic. You can't apply a vintage tactic like we did in 1939. Uh, the average uh, income was 1,729 bucks. Praise God, some things change, right? Uh, we're thankful for that. Well, Central Christian Church has seen God do great things in 80 years. And isn't it nice to know that he's just getting started? Isn't it nice to know that he's got big things ahead of us in our future? But for us to continue to take ground as we move forward, we're going to cling to vintage values and hold an open-handed posture with vintage tactics and how we deploy those values moving into the future. Well, the Bible tells us in that passage you just read to me that we're in a race. And the, the author of Hebrews is kind of painting this picture of like this divine relay. And here's the good news. You're on the tracks. And there's this cloud of witnesses in the grandstand. And they're watching you run around the tracks. And so the question for us today is, man, it's been an awesome 80 years. But how do we run our race right now, right here to win? How do we run this race well? Well, this passage in, in Hebrews... 12 is going to give us four observations that I believe will be essential for us moving forward into the future to allow us to run our race in such a way to win. So the first observation, if you're taking notes, you got these in your program, if you want to follow along. Um, the average person talks about 120 to 150 words a minute. 
Uh, I probably have wind gusts up to 200, so if I talk fast, that outline will help you follow along. So the first observation is this, uh, don't forget. Don't forget. This passage kicks off with this word, therefore. So it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, my mama taught me, Tim, anytime you see the word therefore, you gotta go back and figure out what it's there for. So as we go back to Hebrews 11, we wanna discover what's the there for, what's it there for? And so in Hebrews 11, there's this hall of fame of faith chapter, these men and women who did great exploits, who carried the baton of faith well in their generation. And it starts off in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse four with this guy named Abel. And what the author is doing, he's connecting you in this divine relay to the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. And he says, by faith, Abel. And it connects your story with this divine relay, this baton of faith to your story, the first man, first woman. So right here, right now, in 2019, you're a part of this relay race. He says, by faith, in verse four, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph, by faith, Moses' parents, by faith, Moses, by faith, the prostitute Rahab. How many of you are thankful that God doesn't just allow perfect people on his racetrack? There's a prostitute named Rahab, and I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful she's in there because I'm jacked up. I got some issues, but God still lets me on his track to carry this baton. I'm thankful for that. Then it says this in verse 32, it says, and what shall we say? We're going to read this chunk together. And what shall we say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, was, gained what was promised and shut the mouth of lions, who quenched fiery flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, who through weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, who routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers, floggings, chains of imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They were mistreated. Check this out. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were commended for their faith. Now let's jump to chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also, let us Central Christian Church also throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us take this baton of faith and run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter, of our faith. What the author is saying, tag church, you're it. The baton is in your hands. It's not a matter of, do you want to be in the race? It's not a matter of one day, will I be in the race? The gun has already gone off. You're in the race. Congratulations. Tag, you're it. My hope for you, biggest takeaway, if you hear nothing else, hear this. You are in a divine relay. The baton is in your hands. It's your turn to run. It's vital for us to remember where we've been. It's vital for us to remember those who have gone before us. Otherwise, we might get trapped into thinking that somehow it's all about us. 
It's about my plans, my destiny, my legacy. The mantra of the day is like, you do you, boo. <laughs> hey, boo, you just do you, right? That's dumb. <laughs> Here's why. Because it undermines this biblical principle that you are in divine relay. And if it's all about me, if I'm just doing me, then I forget who's gone before me. I forget that there's people coming up after me and I gotta carry this baton of faith well, otherwise I'm gonna miss the handoff. When I was a teenager, young people in the room, hear me. I lived, we didn't have a pithy saying like that, you do you, but I lived like that. I was like, well, I'm just gonna do me. And what I do doesn't impact you, doesn't impact you, doesn't affect anybody around me. It's dumb. Because here's what I did. I left a wake of destruction, a wake of regret in my path, and I still have not recovered from that since. Don't do it. It's a lie. Don't believe the lie. What you do right here, right now, it matters. And it affects a whole bunch of people around you because you are in a divine relay race. Because we're in a divine relay race, it's not only essential to remember who's ran before us, but it's also to remember, important to remember who's coming behind us. Uh, I, any fans of the Olympics here? Anybody like the Olympics? I like the Olympics, yeah. We got some people clapping, they like it so much. I love it. Thank you, Mike. Um, 2020 is the next Summer Olympic Games, and, and my, my family and I, we like watching the Olympic Games. Even if you're not a, a sports fan, it's kind of impressive just to watch the people who are the top in their craft display their gifts, their talents, and ability on a stage like that. People from all over the world come together to compete in these Olympic Games. And, and so my cousin, Adam, um, he, he was an athlete, like he was a freak athlete, uh, a great runner. Uh, he ran for the University of Arkansas. He had Under Armour sponsor him for different track events, like awesome athlete. Uh, he, he and my, my, my dad and his dad are identical twin brothers. And my uncle, my father, they were both great athletes. My dad held the track record at his high school, like for the mile run for, for years up until I was like a teenager. And it's not because I broke his record. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a runner. I only run fast if like Costco has those dollar dogs going on, or I think there's a sample that I can get my hands on then I'm going to run fast. But, but my cousin was a runner. He could run fast. And, uh, and so from a young age, like teenage, like middle school, he was very conscious of his diet. Uh, he wouldn't eat certain things because he didn't want to contaminate his body. Like he was super disciplined and he aspired to compete on that stage and be an Olympic athlete. And so uh, they came over to our house for dinner uh, one time. And so we didn't see them a whole lot, maybe once or twice a year, but we knew Adam was super health conscious. And so my mom and dad are like grilling chicken. Like we got vegetables we got salads. Like it's, it's a spread to be proud of. Like I felt healthier just sitting at that table. And uh, we're passing plates and, and Adam's there and, and he gets some chicken, he gets some vegetables and he doesn't take any salad. And I'm like, Oh, Adam, like you must've missed the salad. Like we're, we're salad people. Uh, here's some salad. You probably want some of this cause it's super healthy, Adam. Uh, and, and he's like, he's like, you know what? I, I did see that. I can't eat that. He's like, that's, that's kind of like poison. I'm like, it's salad, bro. He's like, yeah, I know, but it's iceberg lettuce. I can't eat iceberg lettuce. I'm like, bro, I will come across this table. If you talk about my mama's salad like that one more time. <laughs> but he was just so conscious about what he put into his body because he wanted to run his race well. He wanted to compete at the highest level. I mean, he wasn't just avoiding a 10 foot donut board out there. Like he wasn't just avoiding a, a 80 foot Sunday. Like it's the biggest Sunday of the year. He's like, he's like, he was avoiding lettuce. Also, he could compete on the world's biggest stage with the world's greatest athletes. 
Kind of like this. Check this video out. It's the 2012 London Olympic Games, the women's 4x100. In order the Americans in their heat, this time, both nations are here in the final. Jamaica in six and USA in seven. Got the baton. This is the image of Romans, or Hebrews 12. There's the cloud of witnesses, runners on the track. That's you. Be America. Also going very strongly indeed around the bend. And Madison may even be a little bit up on Fraser Price. USA and Jamaica as they go along the back straight. Still both running very strongly. The U.S. have super changed over there. Alison Felix here to Bianca Knight. Wow, terrific run there. And the Jamaicans in second place. There's Cousins just further back. They'll come back to that. They'll go on because this is a brilliant run. Knight will hand over to Jetta. Well ahead of Jamaica. Campbell Brown to Terence here. And here they come now. Carmelita Jetta. This is a huge lead for America. Let's look out for the time. This is special. This is a world record. Boom. Margin. World record. America. Right? Years it's awesome. It's awesome. Makes us proud to be an American. It makes us proud to see our team on the track handing the baton off seamlessly, breaking a world record. Holy smokes. That's awesome. They're in the race. It's a divine. It's a relay. There's a cloud of witnesses in the stand. They're cheering them on. It's awesome. That's the imagery of Hebrews 12. And, and, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He, he says this. He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs? But only one gets the prize. So run to win. Competition's not bad. At work, be the best. At church, be the best. In your walk with Jesus, be the best. Whatever you do, run to win. Because only one person gets the prize. So how do we do that? How do, how do we be those people? Paul would go on to say in that same passage, he says, I'm not like a shadow boxer. I'm not just punching the air. He's like, no, no, no. I got a very real enemy and I'm going to punch him in the nose. I'm strategic about what I'm going to do. I'm not going to run this race aimlessly. I'm not going to punch the air. We're going to fight. We're going to be real about this. My son, he's eight. He, uh, I was getting ready for work this week and uh, I walked by the, the restroom. He's getting ready for school and he's doing this in the mirror. So I'm like, Cannon, uh, you okay, buddy? What are you doing? I'm good, Dad. I'm having a staring competition. I was like, you're having a staring competition with the mirror? Yeah, Dad, practice. I was like, Tiffany, talk to your son. We got issues. We got issues. We're not here to have a staring competition with the mirror. We're not here to punch the air. We're not here just to be happy to be on the track. We're going to run this race, and we're going to run to win. So how are we going to do that? Number one, we, we don't forget, right? Uh, we don't forget who's come up behind us. We don't forget who's ran ahead of us. Uh, we're not going to forget that. Second observation is this. Don't get sloppy. If we're going to run this race to win, we cannot get sloppy. In a relay race, it doesn't really matter how fast any one individual runner is. It doesn't matter how fast that relay team is. Because unless there's a seamless exchange in the exchange zone, no matter what has happened prior to that exchange, whatever happens moving forward falls to the track. 
It ends right there. We have to be very careful that we hand this baton off well. We have to be very careful what God has entrusted into our hands, that we don't let it slip from our fingers and fall to the ground. We can't get sloppy with this baton of faith. In a relay race like you just saw, uh, a four by 100, uh, there's a, two, a 20 meter exchange zone and it takes place in 1.9 seconds. And so unless there's a seamless exchange in the exchange zone, no matter what has happened before that moment comes to a screeching halt. The United States is by far the most dominant in this sport on the world platform. The men have won the four by 100 relay 15 times they've brought home gold. The women have brought home gold 11 times. However, since 1995, the men have dropped the baton eight times at the Olympic games and on the world championship platform. The women who you just saw break the world record in 2012 have dropped the baton three or two out of the past three times in the race on paper. They're the fastest on paper. They're the best, but just because they have the skill, talent, and ability, they get sloppy in the exchange zone. Therefore, no matter what happened before that, doesn't matter. You're out. One article read this. Too often the once electrified crowd is left stunned in silence as the men and women on the track get sloppy with the baton. At times, the American team arrogantly relies on its inherent speed and fails to sufficiently practice the handoff and the teamwork that is so crucial to the completion of the race. The best team on the track, they just get sloppy. You're in a divine relay. Opting in or opting out is not an option. We're here on this 80th anniversary to say we will not get sloppy with what God has put into our hands because there's too much at stake. And you might say, well, well, I, you know, 80 years, bro, isn't that enough? 80, you don't know the sacrifice. You don't know the time I've invested. You don't know the commitment I've made. You don't know. And that's fair. I don't know. But if you choose to let this baton of faith slip from your fingers, there is more at stake than we're willing to give. If you were here for the beginning of this series, Vintage Values, week one, we talked about this dude named Joshua. And Joshua was a man of great faith. Joshua saw God do miracle signs and wonders in his lifetime. It was awesome reading Joshua's story. Joshua was there, like Joshua was there with Moses uh, in Egypt, whenever the, the 10 plagues took place in Egypt. Like, like Moses, or Joshua was there, he experienced it. He saw Moses lead this nation of Israel out of captivity to the brink of the Red Sea. And he saw Moses, he saw with his own eyes as Moses stood on the brink of a Red Sea with a staff in his hand, Israelites behind him and the Egyptian army behind him. He saw God part the Red Sea. Joshua stepped on dry ground. He was there, he saw it, it was awesome. Joshua was there whenever he saw God rain down manna and quail from heaven. He ate it, he experienced it, he was there. Joshua was there when, when Moses handed the baton to him and said, you lead these people. They're a bunch of complainers. I'm out. Joshua took the baton and said, we'll go into the promised land. We'll conquer. Joshua was there with the people marching around the walls of Jericho. He saw the walls fall. He saw God city by city deliver the promised land into 
the hands of the Israelites until they occupied the entire region. And then we read this in Judges 2, 7 through 10. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and all who had seen the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Some of you are there, like you've seen, you've seen God do big things, it's awesome. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. He was buried in the land of his inheritance. Check this out in verse 10. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation rose up who neither knew the Lord or what he had done for Israel. How tragic. They got sloppy. And no matter what had happened prior to that moment, it all came to a screeching halt. And so the question is, well, uh, how does that happen? How does that happen? A generation rose up eating the fruit of Joshua's labor, the elders' labor, and they failed to realize what it meant, what was required of them to take ground in enemy territory. They forgot what it was like to overcome their fears and to move forward in faith and face the giants in the land. Somewhere along the way, they got comfortable. Somewhere along the way, they chose, uh, to, they chose comfort over conviction. They settled into a business-as-usual routine, and they dropped the baton. William Barclay, a great preacher, said this. He said, every Christian must see himself, herself, as a link to the next generation. You are that link. The baton is in your hand. Don't drop it. Don't get sloppy. So we gather together on this 80th anniversary to say, not on our watch. Not on our watch. We will not get sloppy with the baton of faith. We will be faithful stewards of what God has put into our hands. We will carry the baton of faith in our generation, to our generation, and to the generations to come. We will not get sloppy. For the next 80 years until the Lord calls us home, we will be a church that stands on our convictions and choose character over comfort every time. We will not get sloppy with what God has put into our hands. Third observation is this, don't get entangled. Don't get entangled. It reads this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangled, entangles. We gotta throw some things off. I don't know if you noticed those ladies on the track, but weren't you astonished by the parkas and cargo pants they were wearing? I was astonished by that. I was like, you guys gotta throw some things off. I mean, there's not much else to throw off there. In the original Olympic Games, when the author was writing this to the, the Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, uh, in an Olympic race, they would have taken that very literal. They, they threw everything off in those races. I'm not going to show you an image of that. But that's how that, the audience would have seen it that way. They we're throwing everything off, everything that hinders, everything that entangles. We're getting rid of it. I think it's interesting that the author distinguishes two things. Because there's, there's one thing that hinders, but then there's also sin that entangles. And so some things aren't necessarily inherently bad. They're not wrong. As a matter of fact, a lot of times, initially, they're good, right? So, so for some of you, just showing up to church today was a big step of faith. And I'm so thankful you did. I'm so thankful that you're here. But if you keep showing up, you're going to reach a place where this is normal. This is common. This is comfortable. And whenever that happens, I encourage you to take another step and get involved in serving. You get involved in serving, that's going to be awesome. But then that's going to get comfortable. And then, then your opportunity is going to be to step up and lead and help other people serve and bring other people along. So some of you, you know, what you're doing right now, it's not bad, but it's just a hindrance. 
And he says, you got to throw some things off. You got to throw some things off. Then he says there's this thing called sin that actually entangles you. And let's be honest, it's easy to get entangled, isn't it? Like it's easy to get tripped up in sinful habits. It's easy. It's easy to do. And he says, here's what you got to do. He said, you got you to you set that aside. This author to the, the, the book of Hebrews, he's writing to a people that are being persecuted. People who are literally being killed. He, you, you just heard what we read. I mean, some people are being sawed in two. Some people are hiding out in caves. Some people are being cut and killed by the sword. Some people are being burned at the stake. I mean, it's real. The stakes are high. But the author makes this interesting distinction. He says, you know what? What's going to trip you up as you run this race? It's not going to be external. It's going to be internal. What's going to hinder you from running this race? Well, it's not going to be the opposition out here. It's going to be destruction in here. And so he says, he says we got to throw off some things that, that hinder us, but we also have to avoid some sin that, that entangles us. And so, so, for example, like, we don't like talking about sin, like, I'm a pastor. I don't like talking about sin. But sin's real. And here's the deal. It will disqualify you from the race. It will take you out of the race. And so we got to acknowledge that. we, we got to run with perseverance. We don't want to be tripped up. We don't want to drop the baton. We don't get sloppy. And so, like, this is a bottle of water, right? But let's assume this is poison. Let's assume this is gasoline. And, uh, and so, so I could put a label on here. That says water. I could put it in the fridge. Then my kids are going to come up. Bad news. It's going to kill them. The milder you make the label, the more potent the poison. And I'm just saying there's this thing called sin, and it will take you out. And it will take your family down with you. It will eject you from the race. But thank you, God, there's an antidote, and it's called the blood of Jesus. And it still sets captives free. So we're going to avoid this thing called sin. We're going to walk in who God's called us to be. We're going to live under his grace. But there's some things we've got to set aside, some things we've got to eject, some things that we've got to get rid of if we're going to run this race unhindered. It's not going to be external. Are, there re- are we in a very broken world? Yes. Are there very real social issues? Yes. Is education and healthcare an issue? Yes. But none of that's the real issue. In my opinion... My opinion, the churches across America are filled with too many unbelieving believers. We're comfortable closing the door and staring at our navel and filling our heads with knowledge, but we have no idea of how to walk out the doors and apply grace and apply love and apply the truth that we understand. Our issues will not be external. They will always be internal. It's time for us to take a stand and say no more. God, if you tell me to do it, I will. If you tell me to go, I'm there. If you set your hand on my life and you tell me to go take the hill, then with God's grace, I'm going to take the hill. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will not be an external force. It will always be an internal force that takes you out of the race. So what's our race? What's the, what's the big deal? You, you heard last week uh, Bryce Jessup eloquently state this, that, that, that your career pays your bills, but your calling is your purpose in life. I love that statement. So Google might pay your bills, that's your career, but your calling is to glorify God, as he so eloquently stated. And here's what I would add to that. I would say we glorify God by living with this mission that I am here for the evangelization of the human race until the second coming of Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's why I woke up today to tell you that, 
Tomorrow when you wake up, you might go to Google, you might go to Facebook, you might go to wherever you go to work. And that's your career, but your purpose, the reason you're there is the evangelization of the human race prior to the second coming of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what Jesus said. Check this out in Acts 1.8. He said this. These are his last words, his very last words. There's something powerful about the last thing you say. Here's what Jesus said, his very last words. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Must be something to that. He said, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, all the way to San Jose, California, right here, right now. That's your purpose. He said, I'm coming back, but hey, while I go, in that meantime, in this interim, here's your purpose. The evangelization of the whole human race prior to my coming back. Congratulations. The baton is in your hand. We got to run. We got to run. So I close with this. A lot of times we think, you know, one day I'll begin that race. Whenever I have enough financial margin, then I'll give. Whenever I have more time, then I'll serve. Whenever I begin to like people somehow miraculously, I'll join a group at that time. But until then, I'm going to sit tight, right? One day when I'll jump in that race, the gun's already gone off. You're in it. Congratulations, you're on the track. How you doing? We will be a people that run this race well. I love how this church got started. It was radical, passionate faith that led a group of men and women to found this church called Central Christian Church, that led a group of men and women to start a Bible college called William Jessup University now, but it was called something else then. Right? San Jose Christian. That too. San Jose Christian. (laughs) Buddy, back there, if you got a kid, send him to Buddy. San Jose Christian. But it was radical faith. You heard Bryce talk last week. The, The staff were compensated with dented cans of baby food. That was their compensation. I'd have a hard time facing my father-in-law saying my compensation is a dented can of baby food. Don't worry, you can trust me with your daughter and grandkids. I'm good. It's radical. Some people looking in would say, that's foolish. We have to get to a place in our walk with Jesus where we're willing to do some things that feel a little bit foolish for God to do something that only he can do. Some of you have told me, you left all of that to come do this? How foolish. You left, you brought your family to the most expensive spot in America. (laughs) How foolish. People are going to watch your life at work, at home, and your family. They're going to say, you gave what to what? You gave your time, your talents, your resources to that? How foolish. And when they tell you how foolish, just remember Hebrews 11, because you're in good company. There's a great cloud of witnesses that have carried this baton before us and they were willing to look a little bit foolish. Imagine how foolish Noah felt building a boat. Noah, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. What's a boat? I don't know, but God said it's gonna rain. What's rain? I don't know, but it's gonna lead to a flood. What's a flood? I don't know. God just told me to build a boat. How foolish. Moses, brink of a Red Sea. Follow me, people, we're good. How foolish. 
Sarah promised to have a kid at the age of most grandparents. Can you imagine shopping at Target in the maternity line, looking like a grandma? How foolish. The Israelites marching around the walls of Jericho. This is going to work, boys. Just keep marching. How foolish. David, a young boy, standing before a nine-foot giant with just a couple stones and a slingshot. How foolish. Esther, going into the presence of a king, knowing it could cost her her very life. How foolish. Caleb, at the age of 85, 85, telling Joshua, give me that hill. I've been faithful. I'm as strong now as I've ever been. I'm not retiring. I'm not cashing in my 401k. I'm refiring. Let's go, Joshua. Give me the hill. Okay, Grandpa. (laughs) How foolish. Mary, a pregnant teenage chick, virgin. How foolish. Wise men following a star, walking miles and miles and miles, only to walk into Jerusalem and say, hey, we're here to worship the newborn king. What are they talking about? How foolish. Peter, watch this, boys. I'm going to step out of this boat, and I'm I'm about to walk on some water, y'all. How foolish. A woman with an issue of blood spent all of her money, cashed in, to get help from some doctors. Doctors had no solutions. She pushes her way through this crowd and says, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, maybe, just maybe. How foolish. Paul and Silas arrested for helping people find and follow Jesus, sitting in a jail cell, likely in their own feces, chained to a wall as their backs are ripped open singing amazing grace through the night. How foolish. A boy with five loaves and a few fish looking at thousands and thousands of people saying, maybe, just maybe my little lunch box can multiply. How foolish. Perhaps the most foolish of all, Jesus hanging on a cross, naked, beaten, mocked, spout upon in front of his mama, front of his best friends that's your messiah that's your leader that's who you're going all in for how foolish if we're going to carry this baton of faith in our generation to our generation so that generations can come and say they might have looked foolish but i'm so thankful they held on tight we've got to get to a place in our spiritual journey where we're willing to look foolish to those on the outside because we know what God has already done on the inside. And when they laugh, when they say you're foolish, you remember you're in good company because no one in his family were saved from a flood. Moses did see the Red Sea part. Sarah did give birth to Isaac. The Israelites did see the walls of Jericho fall. David did kill Goliath. Esther did stop a Jewish genocide. Caleb did take Hebron. Mary did give birth to the Messiah. The wise men did worship the King of Kings. Peter did walk on water. The woman with the issue of blood was healed. Paul and Silas were miraculously freed and they saved the jailer in the process. The boy with five loaves and a few fish did see thousands of people fed. Jesus did come off the cross and three days later he did rise from the dead and he did conquer death hell in the grave and my bible tells me 
that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of me and he lives inside of you. So on this 80th anniversary, let's declare we're going to run this race and we're going to run to win. We're not here to play games because if the resurrection power of Jesus lives inside of you, lives inside of me, you bring your best. I'm going to bring my best. God's going to bring his best. What is possible in that formula? Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to say thanks. Thanks for the invitation to carry this baton of faith well. Thank you, Jesus, for those who have ran this race ahead of us with grace, with excellence. They weren't perfect, but God, they ran well. And they've handed the baton of faith to us so that in our generation, we can run to our generation so that generations to come might know how awesome you are. So Father, I pray you'd help me on this 80th anniversary, you'd help everyone gathered here under the sound of my voice to run their race well. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing we're gonna do now is celebrate communion. If you've been filling in the blanks and you're wondering, nothing will be right with the world until you get all those bad boys filled in. And I appreciate that. And so the ushers can come on and, and begin to pass out the communion elements. And some of you might be asking, you know, 80 years, why, why do we do communion every week? And that's fair. It's, it's new uh, to my church background. Um, but here's why. Here's why we do communion every week. Number one, so we don't forget. So we don't forget that there's been some people that have ran ahead of us. They've passed the baton down through generations, and now we get to carry this baton of faith. We don't want to forget that. We don't want to forget that there's some runners coming up behind us. We want to be able to pass off in that limited window of opportunity. We want to not forget that. Second reason we, we do communion every week is because we want to examine our lives to see if we're getting sloppy in any areas. The cross reminds us to choose character over comfort every time. The cross reminds us to stand on our convictions over complacency. Always remember that you are commissioned to carry the baton of faith in your generation to your generation and generations to come. We don't want to get sloppy. We do communion every week to remind us that we don't want to get entangled. This is a moment, this is an opportunity for us to reflect and say, God, is there anything in my life that's slowing me down? Is there anything in my life that's hindering me from running this race well? Is there anything in my life that I've fallen snared to, I've been entrapped by? As I mentioned, sin is very potent, but the blood of Jesus still sets captives free. And here's the fourth observation to run this race well. Don't lose sight. Don't lose sight. The primary reason we do communion every week is to recalibrate our focus back onto Jesus. To say, God, this is all about you. This is your church. This is your deal. This, my life is yours. It's all about you, Jesus. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12, B through 3. It says this, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not on a pastor, not on an organization, not on a ministry, not on our history. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Check this out in verse three. Consider him who endured such opposition 
from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. We do communion every week to recalibrate our focus on him. Because if you're gonna win this race, if you're gonna run this race well, if you're gonna carry this baton well and hand it off well, we've gotta have our eyes fixed where they belong. And that's on Jesus. He is everything that you need. Everything you would ever need is found in him. Throughout 2000 years of church history, there's been a lot of this. We've dropped the baton. Generations previous and generations here have dropped the baton. And if you've been impacted by that, you've been wounded by that, I just wanna say on behalf of the church, I'm sorry for that. We acknowledge that. But here's what I know to be true. Jesus is still captivating. Jesus is still perfect. His track record has not changed. He is still flawless. So fix your eyes where they belong on him. Every week we would take communion to remind ourselves of that. Our hope is anchored in him. And so as you hold those elements in your hand, the bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for you and for me so that we could cling to hope not in anything that we can see externally, but in the one who transforms us from the inside out. Representing his body that was broken for you, you may eat the bread. In the same way, he lifted up a cup of wine at uh, this last supper. He's with his disciples and he says, uh, he said, this cup that you hold in your hand now, it represents a new covenant like a new day. You don't have to earn your way to God. You don't have to go through a pastor or a priest. Like you have direct access to him. It's a new day, a new covenant that we live under. He said, every time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his sacrifice, we drink the cup today. So Jesus, we just want to say thanks. Thanks for being our example in this race. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to cling to you and to know that our hope is anchored and secure in who you are and who you've called us to be. So Father, I pray for the next 80 years or until you call us home, that we would carry this baton of faith well and represent you well as you would want us to. In Jesus' name, amen.